Okay, we're going to go to Mark's gospel. Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 3 and verses 7 to 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard what he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idium, and the regions across the Georgian around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowds, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he healed many, so that those who had diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God. And he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Wherever Jesus went, crowds gathered. That's my title today, The Crowds Will Gather. Jesus couldn't go anywhere without thousands gathering. I don't know what you picture. I don't know if you've had a, a children's Bible as a kid, kind of the size of the page dictated how many people were there. And there was you know, a few bearded fellows, five of them roughly, and Jesus in the middle. He was the one with the glowing halo over his head. Actually, my imagination is bigger than an A5 sheet. It's, I believe there was tens of thousands I think that's, that's substantiated with many scriptures. At one point he fed 5,000 men alone, and that didn't include women and children. Bearing in mind that mostly men went to work, that could well have been 20, 25,000 people. Jesus had tens of thousands of people gathering. Why? There was just something electric in the air when Jesus was speaking. There was just something attractive about this Jesus that made people want to travel long distances just to get time, just to hear just to see. It was just incredible. Incredible. This uh, Jesus, because of the huge crowds, he had to step away from the crowds and get in a boat so he could communicate to them from the boat. You know, Jesus had an incredible ability to use natural geography to get his message heard by thousands. In his days, there wasn't amplifiers or microphones or you know, PA equipment he didn't have PA guys. His life was a huge amount easier. <laughs> His life was a huge amount easier. So what Jesus did was he would speak on a mountain. He used the national geography to help his voice reverberate. So, for example, the amphitheaters that were constructed, these amphitheaters where thousands could be seated and you could hear someone just with a voice communicating around this amphitheater. Jesus used mountainsides like amphitheaters. He would go out on a boat to allow the larger crowds to gather. And, you know, if you've, if you've ever been inside of a lake and someone in the middle of the lake on a boat, and you can hear every word they're saying. You can hear every word they're saying. There's something about water that helps the, you know, the, the sound waves bounce off the water. And you can hear with clarity on the shore what is said on the lake. So Jesus used these natural features to help his communication. And Jesus got away from the crowds. He just got off the shore slightly and he was able to speak to the huge crowds that had gathered. He didn't put any restriction on the amount of people who wanted to come. He didn't want to limit God by the size of that area. He wanted to make space for everyone. And this is what we've done today. We've taken up a special offering. We've given. Why? Not, not because we want a shinier building. We love this building. It's a lovely little retro cinema. But we want a big building. Why? For the sake of many people. Because we love people. And we can't keep this message to ourselves. So we're giving and we're making space for God to do what God wants to do. And this is what Jesus was doing. He didn't say, well, call the meeting to an end, too many people here. 
He stepped out of the crowds. He made space for the crowds. He thought outside the box. So we, we've never got to let the shoe decide the size of the foot. We've never got to let a building decide, well, that's how big the church can go. God forbid. Buildings are servants to us, not us to servants. And they're servants, most of all, to the purpose of God. So Jesus, huge crowds gathered. Why did they gather? They gathered because he met their needs. He satisfied something, and he still does, within the human condition that no one else had ever been able to do. People were deeply attracted. The time that Jesus lived in politically was a dark time for Israel. They were under the oppression of the Roman dictatorship. They were paying the taxes to Rome. They were taxed to the hilt. They were skint. They were not living this great life that they used to live. I mean, Israel used to be a world superpower in its time. It was renowned. It was wealthy. It was prosperous. And yet here they were oppressed under governing an invading army. They were subjugated. They were not living the life. And this is a dark time politically. They were downcast. They were not full of national pride. They were down. And Jesus spoke to them in this dark time, bringing them hope of what life could be. Not talking about circumstances, but talking about your internal condition. And, you know, Jesus brings hope today. Many of you are in dark places. In your heart, you're in a dark place. Many of you are crying out for help. And I want to tell you that Jesus meets your needs. That's partly what attracts you to him. That there's something in him that's this light disperses the darkness in your life. And you're looking for these answers. He had an ability to just say things as they were. You know, some people would think them, but Jesus just came out with it and said it. And people just loved that. They just didn't know what was going to come next. I think there was sniggers going around the crowd when Jesus said certain things. I think, oh no, he hasn't said that. And they would giggle. I think it was the funniest thing out. I love sometimes watch, reading the commentary in the Gospels of how when he was with some of the religious people who were so full of themselves and for years had kind of kept the Jewish people under thumb, kind of enforcing these not, not just the, the Jewish law, which is good, it's from God. They added so much to it. They applied it in a way that was inhumane. They wanted the praise of the people. They hated Jesus getting the crowds. They wanted all the praise and the attention. And Jesus, he would just knock them down to size. I think it was so funny. I think he had a great sense of humor. I think crowds gathered because Jesus was funny. I do. Maybe that just blows the religious dust off your head. You know, you've got these cobwebs. No, Jesus wasn't funny. No, just because you're not funny, it doesn't mean Jesus wasn't. I think Jesus was funny. I do think he's funny. And if you read the Gospels with funniness in your head, you see it. You see, there's a, there's a time where he was having a meal. He'd been invited around for a meal. A very illustrious Pharisee. A well-known Pharisee. Well-to-do person. I mean, someone that everyone respects. Well-known in the community. You bowed down when this person walked past. Jesus was invited for a meal with this Pharisee and his cronies. Is Jesus and them. Now, I don't know how you are, me, if I'm in the company of a bunch of people who I know don't like me, you know, what we'd like, we're trying to do everything we can. Please like me. Please like me. I'll say things that you'd like to hear. And you know, all this. Jesus just didn't do that. He didn't bow to that peer pressure. So what he does is he just, he just kind of starts the topic of discussion at this guy's house. He's just so unintimidated. It's funny. It's great. He starts by talking about, well, you like the places of honor, obviously, in your, in your dinner tables, don't you? You, you? you like to take the priority place and even though there's someone more important than you here, you, you, want, you want to be seen to be the most important, don't you? And he just tears strips off them and they're sitting here thinking, what's this guy all about? No one ever talks to us like this. 
And then he goes on to say, listen, next time you throw a dinner party, you should invite the blinds and the beggars and the cripples. That's who you should invite next. And they're thinking, this is getting really uncomfortable. Then I reckon Jesus just got tucked into his meal. And they're all sitting there looking at each other. You know, there's a kind of awkward silence. Can I stay with you? Sorry, it's just a Shrek moment. There's just this kind of awkward silence. And then one of the Pharisees thinks, sugar, he's just throwing a bombshell. I've got to break this here. So he says, "Uh, blessed are those who sit and eat in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, just a kind of random comment from a religious dude. And you know what Jesus does? Genius. He just takes that comment and he says, all right, let me talk to you about that then. And then he says, those who think they're going to be invited aren't going to be invited. In fact, they turn away the invitation because of the religious prides. And all the ones you don't expect to be there, they're all going to be there. So there. And he gets tucked into the second course. <laughs> I think Jesus was the funniest. So cutting edge. So in. So, ooh. You know, he's just the man. Jesus was unintimidated and he was funny. He was so hilarious. He, the crowds just, they didn't know what was coming next. The kids loved him. Kids just loved being around Jesus. Kids, you can't fool. Kids just see genuineness. And kids just love being around Jesus. I think Jesus challenged people. He didn't somehow think, well, I want to win a popularity contest here. I'll lower the bar and say, well, yeah, j- just follow me. You don't need to do too much. Turn up when you want. Da, 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 da. He didn't do that. He said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to find your life, you'll lose it. You've got to give everything to follow me. You know, he didn't like make it easy for them. Yet thousands gathered to hear him. Not everyone rose to the challenge, but they liked the challenge. People don't like wishy-washy. People don't like things that aren't credible. People don't like bar lords. There's something about this radical challenge, this authentic, radical challenge to live an incredible life that drew people, and some rose to it. It's something within you and within me rises to that. We don't want, I mean, we're talking about life here. We're not talking about something unimportant. We don't want to give our life for just existence. Or paying the bills. Surely. Surely we want to get out of our comfort zones. And live a radical life. To please God. And for each one of us. That will look different. Don't have a preconception of what that will look like. It might look like you have a 9 to 5 job. You have a wife. Two kids and a Volvo. And live in Belerno. That's what it might look like. Or it might look like you give everything and leave to the mission fields. But on the inside both people are sold out. Living for Jesus. There's a radicalness about this that attracted people. They just wanted to be around and just hear the things he said and expose themselves to this challenge. Don't back down for this challenge. Don't go for second best Christianity. That's not real Christianity. Live for Jesus. It's the best. He taught people with grace. In a very religious culture where people had misinterpreted God's laws and were now trying to earn their way to God. They were doing everything they could to tick all the boxes you know, tick, 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 maybe I'll get to heaven. In a religious world where since time began, 
man has been trying to earn God's approval by living in a certain way, but constantly missing the mark because God's standards humans can't measure up to. And in that culture, Jesus came with this message of grace. God forgives. And in front of a judgmental crowd, he, he vindicates a lady caught in adultery. He said, I don't condemn you because she was repentant. He just let people go. No strings attached. He forgave them. He showed an unconditionalness, a grace, a forgiveness that people hadn't experienced before. It wasn't you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. This was just free. This was just given. This attracted people. Because for so long, they'd been under this impression that, well, God, I can't measure up to God's standards. I can't earn God's favor or respect or love or heaven. And that's true. But here was Jesus coming with a message that it's given. It's free. And that drew people. That draws me. (laughs) Boy, that draws me. And this message of grace needs to be heard today. This is what will gather the crowds today. Not a big list of can't do this, can't do that, don't go there, don't touch this. And it's not that we don't have our standards and it's not that we don't believe in living with integrity. But you've got to get the horse before the cart, not the cart before the horse. That all comes from a relationship. All the good living comes from love. That all comes from a place of acceptance. That all comes from a place of, I'm forgiven. I'm going to live grateful. We see this great message of grace that attracted and still does, attracts people to Jesus. Jesus drew the crowds because he communicated a message of purpose. People were drawn to that because people don't want to live purposeless lives. People think there must be a point to life, yet so few people have grasped what that point is. Dr. Hugh Muirhead did a survey of 250 intellectuals, famous writers, philosophers, great thinkers. He wrote a letter to 250. I got one of them. Sent a letter out to 250 of these great people who are held in high esteem. Only a few years back, this was asking the question Could you do me a favor? Tell me what you think the meaning of life is. Most of them came back and said, Honestly, we don't know. Some of them gave their best guess, others gave some prescribed theory that had been passed on to them and wasn't their own opinion. Others were honest enough to say, when you find one, write back and tell me. And he he published all these responses in a book. But there's a lot of people wanting to know meaning in life. You're not finding any. You see, in a generation past, had the enlightenment where it was believed that, you know, science has now got all the answers. Everything you need to know, you can find in science. But actually what it's done is only starts to answer the how and the when of life. It doesn't answer the why and who. It doesn't give you that purpose. It doesn't satisfy that longing in the inside that, you know, what's this thing I've got to get up for in the morning? What's this thing I've got to give my life for? What's this purpose that God has for me? God's made me. He hasn't made me purposeless, surely. And I believe there's a purpose and a calling and Jesus is constantly communicating purpose, constantly communicating a life that's bigger than the lives and the small existence that so often we can get caught up in. I believe this is, this is the life that God's got for us. Jesus gives you purpose. Jesus met people's fundamental needs in life. Abraham Maslow, 
1943, published a paper entitled The Theory of Human Motivation, in which he put forward what has become known as Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And a, we've got a triangle that goes on the screen here behind me. This is Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, where he describes different levels in the fundamental needs of human beings. It starts with physiological needs. You know, everyone needs just to live. You need shelter. We need foods. We need the ability to breathe. We need certain things to simply exist. Once we've, we've managed to exist, then we start to think of other needs. If you haven't got the basics in place, you can't think of any of the other needs in your life until you've got the basics in place. Safety. We, we need to know that we're, we're secure, that we've got employment, that we've got health. Then once we've got those two boxes, we can live and we've got a level of security, we've got health. Then there's the love and the belonging aspects of our needs. You know, the next level is we want to know we're, we're accepted. We're part of family. There's a belonging that we're loved. Then once we realize we're loved and we belong, then self-esteem kicks in. We need to have respect and self-respect and know that we're special. The highest level of need is self-actualization where you have purpose. You live for a purpose. You use your gifts and calling and all that God's made you to be to make an impact on our world. Self-actualization. Maslow in this theory talks about how, you know, if you haven't got shelter, you're not interested. You know, you don't care if you haven't got family. If, if, if If you haven't got shelter and foods, that's your priority. You're not able to think about any other priorities until you've ticked the first boxes. This is a interesting theory. What I find it interesting is you can go to some parts of the world. Last year I was in Kenya. What a wonderful country. And what a wonderful people there. And I tell you, what I saw there was this. That many of the luxuries we live with in the West weren't there. But what was there was community. What was there was people living for Jesus. What was there was passion and fulfillment in people's lives. Yet in the Western world where we've got many of the other elements, we haven't achieved the highest needs of our humanity. But I want to say Jesus meets every single one of our human needs that Maslow indicates. Mick Jagger is now over 50. Older than that, he's over 60 now, isn't he? Grandfather. He's one of the hundreds richest Britons. He owns properties all over the world. His girlfriends have been some of the most apparently beautiful women. He's everything that many people would ever want to have. Fame, money, women. Yet his Keith Richards, the guitarist in the Rolling Stones, publicly confessed that 99% of the male population in the Western world and beyonds would give limb and life to live the life of Mick Jagger. Yet he's not happy being Mick Jagger. You see, you can have certain needs met, but if you haven't got the ultimate need met in your life, you're not going to be happy. Jesus meets every single one of our needs. Jesus meets the basic needs, the physiological needs, the basic elements of needing to just to live and survive. Jesus constantly gave money to the poor. This is one of his habits. You find in the end of his life, as Judas was betraying Jesus, Uh, Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And Judas disappears. The other disciples in that moment, they were asking each other, what's he gone to do? And some of them said, well, maybe he's gone to give money to the poor. Why would they assume that? I'll tell you why they would assume that. 
Because this was a frequent happening with Jesus. That Jesus would constantly ask Judas on a regular basis, I believe, because Judas was in charge of the money, to go and help those particular people, to go and set something up for these people with this money. Jesus had a resource that he used to bless. I believe that. We find another time where Jesus, he's been talking to thousands who had gathered, and they're hungry. They've been there a long time listening. But they don't want to go anywhere because they're getting food for their soul. But they need food for their body, and Jesus knows it. It's a basic need of life. And Jesus feeds the five thousands with five loaves and two fish. Incredible. Through a miracle, Jesus has and always will meet practical needs in life. It's, it's amazing to see it. Jackie Pullinger, who spoke a few years back at our summer conference, she was talking about her passion to meet needs. And she's got this rule of thumb that she never sees a need without doing something about it. I mean, what an incredible way to live. That's mind-blowing if you take that literally. She, she never sees a need without doing something about it. And as a result, she rarely reads magazines or watches the television because she cannot expose a soul to need without feeling the deep compulsion that she must do something about it. So one of her colleagues came to her one day and said, Jackie, there's a whole lot of refugees landed. The government's put them onto a particular island just off the coast. They've got to stay there while they seek asylum. They've got no food. Jackie knew she had to do something about it. She said, how much money do we have in the bank? And she said, we've got this amount of money. And they calculated with that amount of money, they could feed all the thousands of asylum seekers on that island for a few days. Then they would have no more money in their budget. So she said, okay, I've made a decision. We're going to feed them for a few days until we've done what we can do. So they did. With the money they had in their account, they started feeding these people. And after a few days, the press became aware of what Jackie Pullinger was doing. It became front page news and before she realized it, lots of money came flooding in from all different sources that she didn't know about. People giving her money saying, please help these people. To the point where she had way more in account than she ever started with and she was able to thoroughly meet their needs. And then the government took them under the wing and she at the end of it was left with much more in her bank account than she had at the beginning. She made a commitment to meet needs. That's very like Jesus would do. And that's how Jesus wants us to live. Jesus met our safety needs. He healed the sick. He, he, he changed physical situations. And I want to tell you, he still does. Jesus heals sick bodies. He heals sick bodies. But you'll say, Ah, but Peter, I know so-and-so who, who didn't get healed. Well, do you know what? I know plenty of people who didn't get healed as well. But I also know multitudes who have been healed. And I know, according to the Bible, that Jesus hasn't changed. He heals sick bodies. Jesus heals the sick. He promised God's provision. If you, the Bible says if you seek first the kingdom of God, then he, everything else you need in life will be provided. If you make his interests your interests, he will make your interests his interests. He will commit himself to providing your basic needs in life as you put him and his kingdom first. Jesus meets our needs to belong. He was the friend of sinners. He provided a family to those who no one wanted anything to do with. He welcomed them. He ate with them. He enjoyed their company. Here he's birthed this great thing called church. And church shouldn't just be a gathering where we sing some songs, clap a few hands and hear some jokes and go home. Church has got to be a place where it's a family. But you know what? You are welcome to be as involved as you want in this family. For some of you, you think, I'm just going to turn up and go away. That's fine. It's fine. No problem at all. 
But you know what? There's a basic human need of belonging. We're here to meet your needs. So please do get involved. Please do get to know each other. Get involved in cell group. Enjoy this belonging. This is a forum that God has made available for belonging. Jesus communicated love and acceptance for those who didn't have any love or acceptance. Jesus met our need for self-esteem and respect. He challenged people to live meaningful lives. And you know what? He accepted people even though they were sinners and didn't judge them for their sin, but saw past that, believed in them, and then helped them to change. That gives you an accurate self-esteem. Some people get self-esteem by pretending everything's fine in their life. Everything's fine. They tell them it enough. They look in the mirror. You're fine. You're good. You're good. You're going to do it. You're going to do it. And somehow or another, they make it through. But that's not based on reality. That's just kidding yourself on. Fake it till you make it. What Jesus offers is a reality check. You are a sinner. Agreed. But I still love you. Now deal with your sin. You get great self-esteem. You know you're accepted. He hates your sin, but you do too. It's rubbish. So you deal with it. You don't pretend it's not there. You don't just look at yourself in the mirror and tell you everything's going to be fine. No, no. You're dealing with the root issues. And Jesus is meeting this deepest need in your life for good, healthy, accurate self-esteem. All of these needs, all of these bottom four levels in Maslow's hierarchy of needs just help you to simply survive. If you don't just want to survive, you want to thrive. You want to grow. You want to not just take over in life, but go somewhere. You've got to move to the highest level. And that's self-actualization. Here's a definition of self-actualization. Self-actualization is the need of humans to make the most of their abilities and to strive to be the best they can be. To be all that God created you to be. To not just exist and survive having your needs met, but to start living your purpose. Not just to be neutral, but you're going somewhere now. You're purposeful. You're living. You're looking at the gifts and callings that God's placed in your life. And you're now doing something with them. You're moving and Jesus meets his greatest needs in our life. He motivated us to not to live for us. He motivated us to live for others. He motivated us to live for God's. He motivated us to use the gifts. Gave us parables like the parable of the talents where he talked about, you know, he gave to each one according to the ability. And he encouraged us to multiply our gifts, to apply our gifts to the ground, to make a difference with our lives on planet earth. God knows he needs people like us who are willing to take responsibility for life and do something. Not out of a feeling that we need to prove ourselves or out of a desire that we need to earn God's favor. That box has been ticked. So let's just live our purpose. Let's move on to this highest level of living. Jesus talked about this highest level of living. He said, I've come that you may have life to the full. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, it says that may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body. Keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. God wants you not just to survive. He wants you to thrive He wants you to live a full life, a whole life, where not only your body, but your spirit and your soul and your body are strong, are whole, are going on with God. God's interested, and Jesus always has been and always will be, in meeting your deepest and most basic needs in life. Jesus in John 10.10 said, and this is the New Living Translation, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Anyone know who the thief is? It's the devil. There is a devil. 
and he hates you, and he'll do everything he can to undermine you. Don't blame God for the bad stuff. God ain't the thief. Jesus acknowledges the presence of the thief. He says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But he said, I have come that you may have life in all its fullness. In this rendition, it says, my purpose is to give them a rich and a satisfying life. Isn't that great? To be honest, is that not just what everyone wants? This rich, satisfying life? Walk with Jesus Christ. This is the life he's come to offer you. Sometimes it won't happen overnight, but it does happen. Walk with him every day. Keep walking with him. I believe people want God without realizing it. Today you think, well, Peter, if the crowds gathered where Jesus was, where are the crowds today? Because, I mean, while we've got a full room here, the reality is churches across Edinburgh are emptying. Where are these crowds just speaking about? Well, you know what? Many people have got a, a misconception of what it's all about. Andrew Owen, I think it was a petrol station or something, he got into a discussion with someone. And they were saying, so what do you do? And Andy thought, you know, he would, he would string this out a wee bit. He said, so, okay, I work for the biggest organization in the world. Oh, okay, no idea. Okay, it, it employs the most people, and it's also got the biggest voluntary staff in all the world. No, can't get it. And he strung this on for a, you know, if you think about the church, it's incredible. And then he said, I work for the church. And they went, oh. <laughs> why did they go, oh? I'll tell you why they went, oh. Because many people have got a misconception of what this thing, church, could and should be. It's a small-minded concept. It's reducing it to be something it's not. Many people have got preconceptions about church that it's full of hypocrites. Well, that's true. That's why they'd be very welcome to come. (laughs) The only difference with hypocrites in church and hypocrites out of church is we're acknowledging we're hypocrites and we're trying to do something about our hypocrisy. Yeah? You agree? Yeah? You agree? You tell me you're hypocrites. (laughs) Yeah, okay. That's fine. That's right. We, We just acknowledge that together. People have this preconception about what Christians are all about. You know, they, they just think, well, it's just a big list of don't, 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 don't. So I don't want to come to this thing called Jesus because Christianity is like this. Angie, the other night, there was watching a soap opera, Waterloo Road. Anyone watch Waterloo Road? No? And you knew one else wa- no one else watched that, Angie. <laughs> told you it was rubbish. Anyway, it was about Waterloo Road. It was about a road called Waterloo, okay? And it was about a school that no one watched. This, this was about a kind of small-minded Christian school. That, and it really did, this, this program did an amazing job at portraying Christianity rubbishly. And it kind of put it across as bigoted, small-minded, narrow. And you know what? Many Christians are. Sometimes in our zeal, we don't apply wisdom. Sometimes we're naive. But when you look at Jesus Christ, he wasn't. Jesus had absolute zeal. And he didn't compromise. Yet the only people he had a problem with were the religious jerks. Commoners loved him. And yet, we're living in a world where many times Christianity and Christians or spokespersons for Christianity have offended the commoners by just being so unwise, and yet the religious love them. That was the opposite to Jesus. 
we've got to apply wisdom in our Christianity. Many people have just kind of brush off Christianity. Some people brush off Christianity because they have a wrong impression of God. They say, well, God is harsh and judgmental. If I give my life to God, he's bound to ask me to go somewhere and do something I don't want to do. What's that? Where's that come from? This is a strange concept people have of God. They have this concept that God's a distant God and maybe they've prayed at times and God hasn't answered their prayers, so it seems. And they're saying, well, that's it, God's distant. Well, it's so many preconceptions can hold people back from the reality that is so wonderful and so powerful and so life-changing. But I believe the crowds will gather when the world sees Jesus accurately. So that's our job. Say us. That's our job. That we've got to portray Jesus accurately. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the hills, and the people from all over the world will stream and to worship there. There is a great picture of church. It's prophesied that church, God's house, is going to become the most significant thing on the planet. That's my expectation. Every local congregation should have that expectation. That in their vicinity, in their city, in their region, they're going to rise up and become significant and become influential. And the people will stream to it. I mean, I, I can picture that. I can see picture people streaming to church. Just like you see on football days, you know, crowds streaming into the stadiums. I can see church becoming like that. That's what I believe can happen this generation. I believe we can block the roads with church traffic. Yeah? Here's a vision. Let's block the roads with church traffic. People streaming to church. I believe that's totally possible. How is that going to be possible? Well, it's going to be possible when people see Jesus for who he really is. Not for how people have portrayed him to be. Not for how small-minded Christians have done a disservice to him. Not for how the religious upbringings taught about him. But actually, just who is he really? More accurate and the more back-to-basics that we can present Jesus. Just in line with what the gospel is all about. The more attractive he's going to be. Because we don't need to hype this up. It's just phenomenal by itself. All we need to do is put it in a platform and say, look at this. And the Bible says that the nations will stream to the church. Tommy Tenney said this, talking about revival. Just because God shows up, that's not revival. Just because people turn up, that's not revival. To get both in the same place, that's revival. For this, you need credibility in both realms. You see, just having a huge crowd of people, that does not mean that God is at work. It is very possible, through clever marketing and putting on a good show, to just gather a good crowd of people. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't do clever marketing. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't put on the best show. But if that's all you got, all you've got is that. But if you want revival, you've got to have God's presence in it all. And revival isn't just when you've got a great church and there's three of you there, but God's presence is so powerful. Well, good on you three. Isn't that wonderful? But you're not changing the world. What our dream is to have credibility in both realms. Credibility with the world, not by watering down anything, but by presenting it as it is and saying, look at that. Isn't that incredible? By breaking through preconceptions, by helping people see God, see Jesus, for who he should be, for who he, how he should be presented. 
And then also having credibility before God because we're a praying church, because we're a praying people, because we just, we love him and we worship him with all our hearts and souls. We don't come to church because it's popular. We come to church, we love God. We're here because we want to do everything we can to bring him honor through our lives. We've got credibility in both realms. God will be there and people will be there. How will the world see Jesus? Here's three things before I end. Number one, people will see Jesus in you when he's first in your life. You love him with a passion. Seek to involve him in every moment of your life. Gordon Brown's just written a book on courage. He identifies three different types of courage. The first type of courage is career heroes. These are people like firemen, people like the police, people like the military, who do heroic things because it's their job. The next category of courage or heroicness that Gordon Brown indicates is situational heroes who kind of, they find themselves in a predicament and you know what? Instead of backing down, they rise up and do something about the predicament. They weren't planning it, they just find themselves in it and they do something about it. For example, in 9-11, Flight 93, which was the one that, that crashed before it hit its target and it crashed, landed in a, in a field, killing all the passengers. What happened on board that was Al-Qaeda they had taken over the cockpit. They were threatening people with knives. And on board that plane, and we hear, we've maybe seen it in the news, people were phoning their loved ones, and they were on the phones realizing that planes were flying into buildings. It dawned on them that this was exactly what was going to happen to Flight 93. Some heroic people on board that plane made some decisions. This caused them to storm the cockpit and bring the plane down, killing everyone potentially saving thousands. Situational heroes. But then the third type of courage that Gordon Brown talks about is those who have devoted their entire lives to living a courageous life. To living for a purpose or living for a cause, not because it's their job or not because they find themselves in a sudden situation that they must respond to, but just because it's a call that they've got to rise to. And this is the kind of hero I believe Jesus Christ calls each one of us to be. People who just say, you know what? With everything within us, we're going to live for you, God. And that is going to attract people because Jesus is on display through your life. You hang around people who are living for Jesus. There's something about them. Yeah? I remember 15-year-olds. This is how my life changed. I hung out with a couple of people. One particular girl, Alexandra Hogarth, she had become a Christian in South Africa. And I tell you, she was so changed. You could see it in her eyes. There was a passion. There was an intensity in the right sense. There was a depth and there was a deep eagerness to please and love God. You know what? I, it blew me away. I thought, I want that. That's the kind of life I want to live. And you see, all of a sudden, Jesus was on display for me. Jesus was on display. And when I saw Jesus, I, I saw past my religious upbringing. I saw past how some people had portrayed Jesus, but I saw how he could be in someone's life. I said, I want that. Is your life the kind of life that puts Jesus on display? Are you just a situational hero that rises to the challenge, or do you just do it because it's your job, or do you commit yourself to a life of living for Jesus Christ? That will put Jesus on display in an awesome way. David Carr, who preached here, pastor of the Birmingham Renewal Center, he, he preached here a month or so back, some of you remember him, we went out with him for a meal on the Sunday night and you're spending time with a guy like that. You're spending time with 
Jesus in someone. That guy's alive in Jesus. Alive in Jesus. He's got an incredible sense of God in his life. So aware of God's presence. You know, we're sitting there for the meal. He's just joking around and he's chatting to the waitress. And he says, you know, you're going to get married soon and you're going to have three kids and you're going to call them this. And, it was just, and, he was, and she was laughing and giggling, and, but he was serious. This is a sense of God on this guy's life. And this guy, on two occasions, had, has met Jesus in visions. There's just something tangible, something awesome, something of presence about someone's life where God is allowed to be God. So give him your all. Allow him to be your God. Don't settle for religion or Sunday Christianity. Don't be a situational hero. That although that's good. Or don't just do a career heroic thing. That's, that's good too. But live life heroically for Jesus Christ. Put him on display with the life that you live. John the Baptist said in John 3.30, He must increase, but I must decrease. Allow Jesus to take priority in your life, even above yourself. Second thing I want to say about putting Jesus on display helping people see Jesus, is people will see Jesus through the love, our love, in action. Mahatma Gandhi said, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. He said that in response to going to a church one day and being turned away at the door because of the color of his skin. Christianity, huh? Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I'm very grateful that he said that. He's done a great service to Christianity by saying that. He's put the red rag in front of this bull. So we've got to do something. We've got to be people who put love into action. We've got to flesh this love out. We've got to let people see what this is all about. This week, precious Romanian couple, I don't know if they're here today, Georgia and his wife, uh, they, they've been around the building. Last week they came to church. Someone had given them, a car, given them a card in the street saying, oh, go to Destiny Church, they'll help you. And they gave them the church card and they turned up. So now we have to help them, which is great. And that's what we're here for. And they don't speak English. They, they have no job. They've just come across. They've just arrived. This is it. They do not know where to turn. They don't know who to ask. In fact, they can't even ask. They don't speak the language. So Graham, Ash, Amy Watts, and a few others this week have just been sticking in, phoning, taking their time to phone, phoning all around the city, trying to find accommodation, trying to find work, trying to do what we can do to somehow give these people some life here in the capital of Scotland. Love and action. That's the sort of thing that's going to change our world. That's the sort of thing that will give credibility to our message. And the third thing that we've got to do is we've got to be a people. People will see Jesus in the church as we worship together in unity. Jesus said in Matthew 18 verse 19 to 20, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, there I am among them. Agreement, unity, is so essential and important for life and church. So vital. And you know what's going to display Jesus really well? It's if we get it together. So I want to say, don't carry unforgiveness towards others in this congregation. If you do, don't go another day without dealing with it. Deal with it today. Don't let it go any further. No more. Don't let yourself off with it anymore. It's devaluing who you are and it puts a barrier in this congregation. Love each other. This is what Christianity should be about and if we can't get it together, 
then who are we to portray a message to our world saying there's an answer? Don't have attitudes. Don't gossip. Don't go into little huddles and gossip about people, leaders, or the vision of this church. That's small-minded and narrow, and it's not going to help anyone. If you've got a problem, talk to someone. Not someone else, but come and talk to the person you've got a problem with. I advise you, don't hang out with small-minded negative people who can only criticize. Those people are not going to go anywhere in life. Yeah? Let's be united. doesn't mean we agree with everything, but when we disagree, we, we deal with it properly. We don't give it as an opportunity for disunity. We protect that unity. We love each other. We preserve that attitude. We preserve that hope that's amongst us. And you know when we gather to worship, the power of God will be there with greater power because of our great unity. I think we're already good at this, but I think we've got to work harder. Work hard. Love. Be united. Be together. Crowds will gather when they see Jesus in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, wherever you went, thousands upon thousands gathered. And Jesus, today our deep desire is that this church and other churches in this city and other churches, part of our network and others beyond our network, God would, in this day and age, God, that you would be displayed accurately. You'd be put on show for the world in a way that has credibility, in a way that brings you honor and praise. Lord, our desire is that people would see you for who you are, that people would love you and adore you and worship you. Lord, thank you so much for the way you meet needs. Thank you so much for the way you heal. Thank you so much for the way you motivate. Thank you so much for the way you do deep works in people's lives. So Lord, we ask, do you work in us? Change us. Mold us, make us. Help us to be all that you want us to be. Thank you, Lord. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, Peter, I haven't given my life to Jesus. Or maybe I have at one point, but... You know, I haven't been living it. I've, I've fallen away. And today I need to get back on track. Today, if you're distant from God and today if you want to make that commitment to following Jesus, and it's radical, but you know, you don't want anything half-baked. You don't want anything second best. You deserve better. So I encourage you, rise to this challenge. Rise to this commitment. And give your life to the God who made you and gave life to you in the first place. Place your life, your future into his hands if that's you today then I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now you know we need his help we need his forgiveness and we need to make a commitment if that's you I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now repeat it after me under your breath pray like this dear Lord God today I come to you I place my life and my future into your hands Today I make a commitment to you that with all my heart I'm going to seek to follow you Jesus for the rest of my days on earth. I acknowledge that I am a sinner but I believe Jesus you died for my sin so that I could be forgiven and whole. And I ask you just now to forgive me. I ask you to cleanse me. And give me a new start today. I turn my back on the old life. And I follow you now, Lord Jesus. 
I believe you're alive, Jesus. And I make you Lord of my life. Amen. You've prayed a very important prayer. You've made a very important commitment. Lord, thank you so much today that we have all, in our own way, made our commitment to be heroes for Jesus. Help us to live this life that brings you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.